This is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Folks, this is Ben. This is episode 200 of A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. So a little bit of a celebration, I suppose, that we reach uh, another kind of nice round centenary number. Uh, Maybe I should have baked a cake. Maybe someone else should have baked me a cake, but no one did. But anyway, I'm glad you've come uh, to listen to this uh, 200th episode. And my guest on it is Emma Hardy. So... Bear with me while we do a bit of housekeeping and I will introduce Emma after that. Um, Very important. Let me do a sponsor read for my brand new sponsor. Um, Now, you should listen to this one because it actually could be very relevant to a lot of you, um, their product. So this episode of A Small Voice is brought to you by PickTime. PickTime is the advanced online gallery platform for photographers that combines flexible, beautiful client galleries for seamless photo delivery, customizable layouts, built-in slideshows, client-specific print shops with powerful marketing automation tools to help you maximize your revenue and now even a full blogging feature. PickTime is innovating the digital space between photographers and their clients by providing all the tools you need to make sales, engage with your customers and tell your story, providing an all-in-one solution optimized to help you deliver and sell prints, elevate your images and grow a successful business. Try PickTime yourself completely free for 30 days by signing up for a trial period at pick-time.com and enter the code a small voice to get an exclusive bonus month when upgrading to any PickTime paid plan. Elevate your photos and build a successful business with PickTime, the all-in-one platform to deliver, share and sell your prints. That's pick-time.com. So I'm very excited because at the end of this week, I am off to Montana for the Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review. So most of you will have listened to my specials from that event up until now and uh, heard lots about it. And there will be another special to come from this year's event. I'm going for all of next week. I will also be coming back not only with that special report, but with at least four or five full-length small voice chats in the can. A few people that I'm very much looking forward to having a conversation with I will not reveal to you at this stage who they are just because you know I'm a bit superstitious about these things going pear-shaped once I've uh, mentioned it so I'll keep my powder dry on that but there's going to be some good stuff coming back for you small voice members there will be hopefully some check-ins to come from some uh, of the previous guests who will be there couple of people I've got in mind specifically who I'd like to do a proper check-in with but we'll have a chance to actually do it face to face so that's exciting so if you want to become a member of this podcast and get exclusive special additional content like these fortnightly check-ins with previous guests and the new feature which is called photo book focus a monthly zoom session during which a particular photographer will present a photo book Uh, then you can sign up at pod.fan. Sign up as a member for £5 a month to support the ongoing production of this podcast at pod.fan. Emma Hardy, this week's guest, will be doing a photo book focus in April. Those of you members who are listening and who are going to hopefully enjoy this chat I have with Emma, uh, if you want to 
hear even more about her book permissions, then she will be up next for Photo Book Focus in April. Now, this month, I've got Martin Parr, and that is happening tonight. So I'm recording this on Tuesday. You're probably listening to this on Wednesday, the 15th of March, or some day after that. So we've already done it. Uh, If you are a member, you can access the recording of that at the members page of my website, bensmithphoto.com slash member or members. And uh, that is another perk of being a small voice member that you can uh, join those photo book focus sessions live once a month or um, access the recording video uh, subsequent to that. So yeah, Emma is going to be up, but um, let me introduce her properly in a minute. This episode of Small Voice Podcast is also sponsored by Charcoal Editions, the newest project of the Charcoal Book Club, a curated online gallery selling open edition silver gelatin prints. That means a unique opportunity for photography lovers like me and you to acquire beautiful silver gelatin prints that ordinarily would only be financially accessible to collectors and institutions. Additioning photographic prints is an invention of galleries and dealers designed to increase scarcity and drive up prices. Charcoal Editions is rejecting that model. The purchase price of their prints reflects an equitable division between artist, printer and gallery. You're not paying for a signature or artificial scarcity, but for light itself captured within the fabric of black and white photographic paper. So go to charcoaleditions.com to browse through some of the beautiful images available there. So let me introduce properly... This week's guest, based in London, Emma Hardy, is well practised in capturing the nuances of everyday life. Her images reflect an often unnoticed drama behind the scenes. Coming from a theatrical background and having worked as an actor herself before focusing on photography, Emma cites her fascination with people's behaviour, the tensions, interactions and quirky humour as a driving energy in her work. Mainly self-taught, Emma photographs on film, simply with natural or available light, stating, I try not to impose much technique or too much of my on my subjects. As such, there's a hallmark honesty to her work. Her images are infused with a believable sense of being. Her portraits are intimate and unselfconscious. Tilda Swinton, Natalia Vadianova, Naomi Rapace, Michael Fassbender and Stella McCartney have all sat for her among others. She started photographing portraits, documents and fashion for British Vogue, The Telegraph magazine, Vanity Fair, The Fader, The New York Times and Rolling Stone, among many others, and had her first solo exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery in London in 2006 with a project entitled Exceptional Youth. Other exhibitions in London, New York and Milan followed, and she was invited to photograph a series of portraits for the London 2012 Olympics, again featuring at the National Portrait Gallery. 39 of her portraits are in the permanent collection at the MPG. In 2012, she was commissioned by Oxfam and The Economist to travel to Cambodia to document the citizens of Phnom Penh who were battling the government's land grabs. This series became an exhibition in London 2013, titled Losing Ground. The exhibition travelled to Washington, D.C., where the images were used as a lobbying tool to help the Cambodian situation onto the G8 summit list. Permissions, Emma's first monograph, was published by Goss Books in November 2022, and some of the images were exhibited at the 1014 Gallery in Dalston, London, between December 2022 and January 2023. Describing her aesthetic as raw but tender, Emma finds beauty in imperfection and polish in the detail of everyday life. And through her lens, the most ordinary moments seem steeped in romance and intrigue, as if her subjects are characters in a movie playing in her head. 
Okie doke. So yeah, I um, had a great chat with Emma. I hope you're going to enjoy it. We were able to actually sit there uh, opposite each other, which is always a treat. It used to be, you know, the, the default way of doing this for many years, as you know, especially you long-term listeners. But um, increasingly, it's been remote of late. And uh, that, of course, gives me amazing opportunities to talk to people all over the world. But it's great to be able to get on the tube and uh, visit someone who's London-based and chat with them um, face to face which is also why I'm very much looking forward to doing some chats at the Chico Review next week because that again is always uh, nice to just sit there opposite someone. Now one little addendum here um, Emma was anxious to clarify something because obviously the book permissions as some of you will know is um, primarily a project focused on Emma's children and uh, we talked a little bit about um, I mean the title of the book itself you know should give you the clue about consent and permission and how she feels around various issues uh, relating to that and she just wanted to answer a question that she didn't think she'd really answer properly so anyway let me just read this out I've checked in with my children constantly about how they feel about their pictures being printed in a book or hung in a gallery how they feel about their pictures is essential to the work and each time they've been fine with everything I think what really touches me is that they respect my work and want to support me mainly really I guess because they love me and trust me I mean how incredible is that I don't take that honor lightly I'm grateful for it every day so please do enjoy this chat ahead with Emma Hardy. I always like doing these like this. Um, there's something about that remote thing that, you know, you just lose something, I think. But lots of great people I've been able to talk to that I know no way I would have been able to sit in a room with. So oh, you asked me about, I, I'll probably edit this out, but... Um, I'd love to get Nan Golding, you know, mm. but I don't think so. I was thinking, I wondered if Sally Mann and Nan Golden. Sally Mann would be amazing. Yeah. You will, actually. You just, it's just put it out there. Mm. You will, because... Nan seems like, I know she doesn't, you know, I don't think she likes doing interviews or anything. I'm, I've sort of tried to pursue a few sort of intermediaries. And now would probably be the time because she's promoting this film that she's in, this doc. Yeah. Have you seen it? Yes, I have. Yeah. Have you? Yeah. Have you? Not yet. Mm. What do you think? I think it's a really important film. Mm. I think it's a really important film on, on all sorts of levels, not least, um, I mean, all the Sackler stuff aside and the, and the fact that she, what she achieved as an artist um, with her own traction and her own kind of devotion to the cause is extraordinary but but also just uh, what I learned from the movie about her about her home life her family life which I didn't know about I think it I think there were quite a few things that were revealed in the movie that she hadn't allowed into the kind of public arena mm, until that, yeah. until now because it seemed it seemed appropriate and and so on but I've studied her work for years, I mean, she's one of the photographers who really got me excited about photography when I started to look at photography in a different way. Mm. Not she's just... hugely influential. Oh, sure. she's hugely influential, and 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 I guess her her access to reality, to the present moment, to immediacy, to honesty, to really visceral. Mm. Uh, emotion and feeling is something that not many photographers before her had really done or done successfully mm. because it seemed to me before then photography was a was very much a kind of a creation 
I think, broadly speaking, photographers who certainly going back decades and decades and decades, they came from a very privileged part of society because they were the ones who could afford cameras, had access to, well, all the, all the kind of nuts and bolts of making photography work. And certainly the ones who traveled, they had teams of people carrying stuff around for them. Mm. Now, that's not, not everyone can do that. So I think that what we saw in photographic terms, or what I saw when I started looking at photography, was like, it's all very beautiful, this, and it's very lyrical. And so photography, to me, started off as story, mm. not kind of the real thing. And it was only when I came across Nan Golden's work, and and also, by the way, Richard Billingham and mm. Nick Watplington, I was like, whoa, this is like how... How did they manage to have a camera in amongst all of this stuff? How did the camera not stop what was going on? How did people who were being photographed not reorganize themselves because there was a camera there? And mm. I and I was very curious about how how those photographers managed to do that. And I think it was, you know, it was by dint of spending enough time with the people they were photographing that they kind of didn't notice. Yeah. Um, and also having an awareness, having a real sixth sense about capturing something that was charged. Mm. Um, yeah, we, with Nan, she was photographing her life, wasn't she? Mm. And I suppose that's there's a long tradition of doing that. But she, like you say, well, it was warts and all, and it was mm. raw, but it was also, but it is beautiful and lyrical at the same mm. time. Oh, it's incredible, her work. It's incredible. I mean, someone like my... For example, I remember showing, I can't remember whether it was my mum or my dad, in the same way that I'd play them my favourite pop song. And they'd be like, oh, turn this off, we don't like mm-hmm. it, kind of thing. And putting, uh, let's say, some some of Nan Golden's imagery, um, it was, my mum would just have been, everyone's so ugly, it just looks so ugly. Because, <clears throat> because that wasn't the aesthetic that she mm. was primed mm. Yeah, and then you've got kind of Richard Billingham going yeah. even one step further. Yeah, you know, yeah, 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 totally. Which is which is really, you know, by any standards, kind of quite shockingly ugly mm. to use the same term that your mum used. And yeah. that's a very judgment. That's a very it's generational. Very it's super judgmental and it's super generational. It's, and it's classist in a way. It's classist. The, the, um, Richard Billingham, that, you know, that very sort of working class sort mm. of uh, existence that he was documenting. Again, like you say, hadn't really been looked at in that depth, I don't think. No, I mean, there was there was kind of like, there was photography of the of the working classes, all the, all the London picture posts and all of those black and white photographers who were photographing kids on the street, or whether it was in London or in Ireland or wherever, there was always this kind of, poverty photography that went on and and yeah. I think to a lot of viewers that was other it wasn't really relatable mm. and you know very often those those pictures were incredibly beautiful they were really beautiful because the photographer had a had an eye for the landscape or the swoop of a street or the arc of a child leaping or whatever it was and they they kind of conjured a beauty out of the desperation mm. but that was a bit kind of almost faked so then I, I I guess, was it war photographers who started putting cameras right in front of seriously terrifying 
situations. Mm. Um, yeah, it must have been. You know, I mean, terrifying to look at, as in, like, this is what humans do to each other. Mm. Oh, my God. And then you get... And that's a whole other thing. But to, let's say, my parents' generation, photography was a beautifying tool. And if it didn't do that, then it wasn't successful. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's funny to think think that's the case now, isn't it? I mm. mean, it's, it's the way in which things evolve and, and, and change. But yeah, absolutely. It, you know, had a particular kind of raison d'etre. Mm. Yeah. So Breaking Ground, which... Nan and Richard and Nick and and many others did. Yeah, I, I think that was that was definitely a new movement. I mean, mm. I, I historically I'm not really very qualified to to say that, you know these were the people. There were probably people. They probably had predecessors or people who were doing it in a smaller way. And there are probably a ton of people out there who are still undiscovered. Mm. You know, I mean, look at look at Vivian Meyer as a very upfront example of someone who was making work and died before. Her work was even found. Yeah, and yeah. she's she's the real kind of the kind of ultimate example of the real artist of that. Yeah, yeah, and who that, was making work for her own joy. Yeah, and the whole narrative of how so that all happened, you know, how it unfolded, how how she was discovered, and all that. This is you couldn't make that up. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's just perfect. It's a kind of perfect n- narrative. It is, uh, and and is it better, purer art if you're making it for yourself? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, is it? No. I, I, I mean, I think it's okay to want people to to see it, isn't it? Um, to have ambition to to have an impact on other people mm. with your work. I think so. I mean, that's why writers write and poets mm. write poetry and painter. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, you could it's stick m- stuff in a drawer and somehow get satisfaction from just doing it but I, mm. doubt, I doubt many people are in that category yeah maybe it's the difference between I mean there are lots of things that that people do for joy and it's and then they're classified as hobby and mm. there's dilettante no, dilettante and there's no kind of explanation or apology needed for not very good work because people are doing it because they really love it and they're giving themselves permission to do something maybe not very well and who Mm. cares because they love it yeah Um, like me playing the guitar very badly for (laughs) instance but I think these days actually I was reading have you read four is it four thousand I think it's four thousand weeks by Oliver Berkman talking Uh, about the time the currency of time yeah no I have not read it it's a really good read he's a very interesting yeah yeah it's definitely a really good read and one of the things that he advocates for is people are pressurized to do hobbies that are meaningful or that they then kind of broadcast as in like, oh, I've started doing this, but I'm going to do this for charity or I'm going to get really good at this or I'm da 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 And it becomes a kind of public affair as opposed to a private joy. Mm. Um, and I think photography can be both, actually, I think. There's something kind of very beautiful about the idea of <clears throat> someone having a practice that, you know, is its own reward kind of thing, mm. you know, and, and that, that, that they might be quietly coming back from their job as, a, as a, uh, an accountant and then, you know, playing Chopin or something just to themselves, you know, and I, I don't know, I don't know, there can't be many people who do that, but I love that idea. And, you know, the same could be for, you know, for photography, you know, you could be doing work that no one, mm. that you're not interested in. I like in the idea of music because music, because it's a kind of out loud thing, um, other people can hear it. Photography is, you know, can be really private. Yeah. But someone who is playing beautiful music for their own 
joy yeah. and sort of personal edification. I think that's amazing. I think that's so romantic and yes. pure. But why wouldn't you share that? You know, that's the mm. thing. It's, it's a, yeah. you know, it's about. Have you seen? You know, they put those pianos in in uh, train stations and yes. stuff. And yes, yes. And I've this, seen people, heard people playing. It yeah, quite well, and others really badly. Yeah, really it's badly. Like, yeah, that's enough. Some people are just drunk, you know. But but you get these, and then there's sort of show-offs who are kind of doing it, you know, pretty much all the time. But but they just made a kind of reality TV show out of that because my kid plays the piano and he wanted to w- watch a few episodes. Mm. But no, it's something about the fact that you know music is is supposed to be uh, to commu- you know be communication, you know, mm, like mm. your fellow humans and. Uh, mm. It's amazing to, to for that to be done in public. But thinking about your work, I mean, you talk, interesting, you use the word beautiful and lyrical because I think those are words that were, would describe your pictures. And they are romantic. They are kind of idyllic and romantic, mm. they seem to me. Mm. Um, all shot in that beautiful light and it all feels very kind of summery. Um, I don't know, I'm sure you shot all year round, but... Yeah, I, I suppose... Um, I mean, what makes it into a book? What makes it into a smaller edit? Obviously, there are thousands and thousands of pictures that I went through. And um, I I imagine that if there is beauty and lyricism, romanticism, etc. in my work, that's probably because those things were in me. They were just picked up as a, as a child. You know, that was kind of, it was... Beauty, appearance, those were things that were very important to my family of origin. Mm. And um, I didn't really subscribe to that, first of all, because I didn't qualify. I was quite often told that, oh, you look like your father's side of the family or you look like your father or whatever. For a young girl, that's not what you want to hear. You don't look like a man. So I figured that I was probably outside their, their sort of remit of what was acceptably beautiful. And as a consequence, I quite often tried to run away. I spent a lot of time in nature, mm. a lot. I, I mean, we were really lucky that we lived in the countryside. Um, actually, I was born in London, lived there for a few years, and then divided time between uh, Los Angeles, where my grandmother was living, because my mum used to go and stay with her quite a lot, and and the British countryside. But that's where I really, that's where I really started kind of bedding in as a creature existing in a little in a universe Mm -hmm. and what I loved doing was going into the woods and hearing the birds and climbing trees I really did and that does sound a bit idyllic the motivation was a bit more I actually want to get lost (laughs) I want to I want to I want to find some beautiful family who will adopt me that was that was kind of my young self motivation so you didn't feel like you felt out of place somehow or I I I was it wasn't that I didn't feel I belonged but my home when I was when I was a kid my home was a little bit it was unusual it was quite unsafe um there was a lot of tantruming and bad behavior from the adults and um well I'm I'm not going to kind of go into that but I think it's interesting how a child one child can deal with that versus uh, another sibling who will deal with the same situation but deal with it differently no of course they'll develop different coping strategies and whatever and my I'm really grateful for my coping strategy which was to get out and to get up a tree or lie down in the grass or what or lie on my back and watch the clouds Mm. you know that was something that really brought me solace I felt very peaceful and very safe wow 
And maybe that's carried through into my work. Yeah. I believe it has. So you you had siblings. You have siblings. Yes, I have a yeah. I have an older half sibling and a younger sibling. Yeah. And do, like, have you ever have you talked to them about about that experience and how that they might have dealt with it differently at the time? Or yes, for sure, absolutely. And it's interesting how you know perceptions differ quite vastly, massively. Yeah. yeah. I, know, I know that would be the case with and my I, siblings. Yeah, yeah, my yeah. God. I think that's I think that's pretty normal. And I'm also, I. I find that the kind of the skittishness of memory is absolutely brilliant. I mean, the one thing you can rely on with memory is that it's unreliable. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, and you're like, no, it was definitely, don't you remember? You wore the white coat mm-hmm. and we did this and and you're like, no, so different. Actually, the white coat was yours, you know, blah, yeah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah. And so these conversations <clears throat> kind of roll in on themselves and we're all very convinced of our of our own memory. And that's one of the things that I like about the arrangement of the pictures in in my book is that they is they jump around just as our memories do and one thing reminds you of another thing which might be five years earlier or two weeks earlier or you know it's there isn't there's no linear there's no prescription mm-hmm. to it and as such a, it feels very real I think yeah I was wondering about how you know your kind of perspective of I'm I'm really struggling to know how to uh, articulate this question, but I think it's important somehow. But, you know, obviously the work changes over time because these pictures were taken over, what, a 20-year period. Mm-hmm. So they track, they really track the your kids' entire, you know, childhoods. Mm. Um, like, so let me, let's get it straight. So you started taking pictures of your kids from an early age. From an early age. And I, I, I mean, I did start taking pictures of them as a just as a mum and one of the things that I if I could do a few things again one of them would be this would be that I learned about taking pictures that 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 meant a bit more than just snapping Mm -hmm. um much earlier I'd like to have documented at least one of my pregnancies I don't even have any pictures of me pregnant I mean I might be somewhere in the background but you know all of that very formative experience as a young woman I didn't document because I didn't I wasn't in that space uh so I I I do regret that I mm. wish that I had that because it would I don't know I'd like to be able to, I think this is one of the things that's so fascinating about photographs is that you get the chance to re-evaluate how you were at that time it might not be accurate because of because of memories well that's exactly the question I was trying to ask but yeah. failing to to ask which was about how your perspective change has mm. changed and your you know your kind of perspective on motherhood changes over the years and how mm. maybe looking back on the pictures your perspective has changed as well on the mm. pictures and like when you're editing the book did all that sort of come 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 up and you know how did that influence the edit that you kind of ended up with in a way um yeah, I've, I'm just conscious I didn't answer your last question, oh, yeah. which was I started taking the pictures when my youngest daughter, let's say, was two or three. Yeah. Um, but it was it was a it was a bit of a slow burn. I was taking pictures that I thought were, they were they were they were sweet pictures of my kids, but I found them quite boring. Mm. I was like, mm, I I was trying I was trying to I was. I was trying to get more successful at photographing how I felt. Mm. 
I yeah. couldn't photograph necessarily how they felt because I wasn't in their interior world, but I could photo I could try to transmit how I felt into pictures. And that was about 20 years ago. And then the project that makes up permissions came really to the to its natural end when we moved from the house that we all grew up in, like I was saying to you. Mm. Well, when I say grow up, I was growing up as a young adult mm. within a marriage, having children, how, growing up. How old were you when your first kid was born? 27. Okay, right, right. So still in your 20s, so relatively Yeah, yeah. Relatively I mean, and young. also, I look back, I was I was such a baby. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I, I was pretty capable. And in other ways, I was completely in a kind of form of arrested development. Mm. There were aspects of myself that I'm, I'm still, I'm still, well, of course, I'm going to keep working on everything until, until the day I expire. Um, because I think that's part of the fascination and thrill mm. of life but um yeah I look back on my young self and go wow I'm amazed I could drive I think I was actually a very good driver but comparing my emotional maturity mm. to how I am now you know I was pretty unaware of a bunch of stuff mm. yeah yeah that brings yeah that's <laughs> yeah. very true with me but maybe that was helpful because it meant it it meant that I wasn't I actually wasn't able to think too deeply about stuff. I was I was responding in a in a more instinctive and intuitive and visceral way mm. and not not intellectually. I wasn't I kind of wasn't thinking things through and I'm grateful that I took those pictures then because I wouldn't be able to take the same pictures now. They they yeah. would be very different. Exactly. If I could swoop back in time knowing everything I know now and with a bit more skill as a photographer, possibly, um, I feel that the pictures would, they'd, they'd miss out. They wouldn't have that kind of, that openness and that real, it's almost like innocence. Mm. I was pretty innocent, really. Well, like you say, you're sort of photographing your experience in a way. Yes, without, without the kind of, without the processing uh, of what I was doing. You know, there wasn't... There wasn't too much thought coming in. About, which can be a really good thing. I which think. can be a really good thing. Exactly. Because if you start rearranging stuff and, and trying to attribute meaning to things as you're doing it, that, I think that really gets in the way. Mm. And there wasn't much in the way. And I think that's why certainly the earlier pictures, there is a real, there is a real freedom to them. There is a real um, ease and kind of joy to them. And, and that was something that I was really trying to tap into. I was so aware of my children's ease and joy and just that, that it felt so carefree when they were, they were all together at a certain age, I want to say sort of, let's say when they were like five and eight and 10 mm. or five. So there's like a couple of years between them. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, yeah they were, I think my oldest daughter was five when my youngest daughter was born right. my son was born in in the meantime in mm, between in the middle in the middle and and there was that really just joyful few years when all of them were independently able and they all still felt very unbowed by the world mm. and watching that and then and and trying to capture some of that on film and sometimes I I really did wish that I could just float around like a silent, unapprehended uh, creature, and just and just kind of endlessly witness this energy that was moving around the whole time. Of everything was okay, everything was easy. 
Hmm. It was so beautiful. And if I did catch some moments of that, then I'm really, I'm just grateful. Yeah, I mean, it does feel, there is that mood. I mean, mm. like I say, you know, to me, that's kind of an idyllic thing. I mean, mm. you know, I think it seems like, yeah, your kids obviously had a pretty amazing experience. And did you find those early years as a mum kind of quite easy then or, or because no no I'm some not, people really when I say easy I'm remarking more on them I know I understand, them I understand. Yeah, and yeah. how they were and no, their no. sort of innate yeah. carefreeness and yeah, and as a mum well. I think I mean I was very lucky in that my kids I had three healthy kids mm. I had three bright inquisitive curious I would say relatively happy kids you know they had their moments of course uh and the setting that we that me and my husband took them to, which was, you know, very big countryside and we had animals and we grew vegetables. So that was an trees. echo of your own childhood. That was an echo of my own childhood. It was an echo of the best of my own childhood. But but I, I had this absolute burning endeavour that I was going to give my kids a different childhood that was angst-free and anger-free. And mm. I mean, obviously those are... Those are impossible things because we all have all those things within us. At any given moment, something happens and we'll respond. So also to, to give children something that's too idyllic, I don't think serves them very well. I think I think there's got to yeah. be a sprinkle of difficulty. A and bit of grit strife. in the oyster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit of grit in the oyster. Absolutely. But my, um, let's say my struggle, if I use that bigger word, because I know I had life extremely easy really but my my struggle was can I can I be a good enough mum well certainly a better mum than my own mum was to me um can I be a good enough mum and and be a creative and when I say successful creative I don't mean out in the world it's just like can I can I do work that actually means something that that will make the time that I've pulled from my kids that I've kind of arranged them a bit or I've said let's go and do this and it's been a it's been a slightly manufactured instance in order for me to take some pictures. And I'm, I, d I did have this discomfort quite often. I mean, it was quite amplified very often. There was this, this like, I'm, I'm stealing time from them. I'm not being a good mom. I'm pushing something in a direction that it might not necessarily go in because I feel that a better, more meaningful picture might happen at the end of it. And da -da -da. Mm. It wasn't always like that. Sometimes I literally was catching something that was going on. And... Then, you know, the photo moment would come to an end for whatever reason. And then I'd go into that spin that I, every photographer, I'm sure, suffers from endlessly. And I don't know how to I don't know how to not have this, which is, oh, I should have. Why didn't I? I could have. Da, da, da. Yeah. I failed. I missed. Da, da, da. And and actually what I learned as time went by, which I think is a really important learning, is that. When things line up, when the when life or the you know the universe out there says, kind of, I've got something I can show you. Are you ready? Mm. Are you ready? And you might be ready, and you might catch this thing that's shown to you, and that's incredibly beautiful. And the times that that's happened, I I was very aware of it. I mm. felt like my whole body started fizzing. 
Yeah, and, and you know, the, the, the scarcity of those moments is what mm. gives them the value, right? I yes. mean, if taking pi- great pictures was, you know, this is an age-old mm. thing, and you know, photography is difficult, photography is easy, but if taking great pictures was that was, was, was that easy, then it wouldn't wouldn't be as, as satisfying. But, I mean, you know, I mean, look, I, I've looked at this book, and, and um, although, as you say, you've edited down from, what, thousands of images maybe? Or yeah, hundreds? I mean... Thousands, yes. To get into a tight edit, obviously, it's much, it's much fewer than that. But because you, know, you clearly got. Sorry, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. No, don't apologise. Um, Keep going. No, no, because you, I don't know. Just uh, yeah, there, there are so many. When I first um, became aware of that this book was coming out, and I didn't know your work, and um, you know, there, you see the certain certain number of images being being repeated, and I, and then I was like, you know, how sometimes. You know they'll cherry pick the best pictures, mm. and then you mm. know you see the book, and maybe it's not actually quite as uh, you know up to that. But th- this is the opposite of that. I, when I finally looked through it, I was like, okay, this is yeah, this is great. I mean, these are just absolutely consistently brilliant. So I'm not trying to flatter you, but but they're beautiful, and and um, yeah, I guess that is the advantage of putting uh, work together from from many years of of, of uh, doing it. Yeah, I, I, I think there's that. I think also that I have to give Stu Smith, who's the editor at Ghost, his his part in it because he is an absolutely supreme editor and mm. I learned so much from him. Because mm. I went to him with an edit. In fact, it was a sort of second edit I worked on. I worked on an edit, first of all, um, with a wonderful man called Stephen Ledger Lomas who really helped me get the pictures up off the floor, literally. And we put an edit together, which I think I sent to a book, uh, like a first book award, mm-hmm. and which gave me a sort of a deadline. And then I remember showing it to a couple of people whose opinion I really rate, and they said, oh, I, think, I think you could probably re-edit this anyway. So why don't you... And then someone suggested... A guy called Niall Sweeney, yeah, I know Niall. who's terrific, and I worked with Niall for a, for a, quite a few months actually. It was during lockdown, so we were very much working remotely, and I learned a huge amount working with him. And then we got to an edit, which I then sent out to a few publishers, Gost included. I think I sent it actually to three, my top three. I was like, I'll start with my top three, and then and then I'll kind of you know mm-hmm. see where I go. And actually, Gost replied really quickly. And since they were probably the publisher that I most wanted to go with, I couldn't believe my luck. And I and it just sort of took off and happened very quickly. I mean, from that first phone call with them to actually publication was less than a year. Yeah, that's pretty quick. Which was really quick. Mm. So I guess there was enough that was more or less ready. And I guess Stu must have seen that the shape of it wasn't too incoherent. Um, but it was very interesting watching him pull it apart yeah, and imagine. re-sequence and letting go of some pictures that I was like, no, you can't. That's that's like one of my favorite, almost important pictures. And he's like, it's not working, Em, in the in this sequence. And I'd go home and go, mm, actually, he's yeah. so right. And and then getting more and more confident in his in in my faith in him. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I. I I think he's amazing. I mm. think he's absolutely amazing. And I'm so grateful to work with him. Yeah. Truly. Yeah, I know, you know, when that that the thing that people talk about all, so often is is you know to collaborate with someone like mm. Stu. Um who he gets a lot of 
but yet plenty of of airtime on this on this podcast. I'm he, sure he, he does because he's really God good. God should be sponsoring me. Um, <laughs> I, should, I should like just sponsoring me as a human, not even the podcast. They should just have a I don't know something on a t-shirt or something. But um, no, but it's because they do great books. They do mm. great books, and mm. and um, and you know, yeah, it's 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 fascinating to hear people's sort of you know. Uh, testimony as it were about how important that is and of course there are many great great book designers um you included some sort of still lifes of of flowers Mm. um which they've done on different paper which is very subtle yeah (laughs) but um what are the flowers about okay so the flowers were were that was that was a that was a different project i mean bear in mind that as these various kind of phases which became apparent as phases in retrospect while I was taking all of these pictures I didn't have the end game of a book or or, or even a kind of making them into some semi-coherent body of work it was just it was they were moment by moment they were life going by and I was working as a you know kind of editorial um often doing gallery work photographer alongside so in some ways I was so not in some ways, in every way, I was fully grateful for my family and my home because they kept bringing me back into where I most wanted to be in photography, which was as close to the real deal, as close Mm. to honesty, as close to my innermost feelings as I could possibly be. And then carrying that out into into an editorial portrait commission and, and wanting to photograph whoever it was I was photographing with as much honor and integrity as I photograph my family mm. um, and also with as much um, intimacy that's I'm just very grateful to have had the family work and and if it meant anything at the time that's what it really meant it mm. was like the counterbalance to my work out in the yeah, world yeah, in of the world. professional photography yeah um, but hang on what did you say oh yeah the flowers so that was that was a really, really conscious um, project that was very personal, that wasn't really meant to go anywhere. It was, for me, it was an exercise, literally. Um, the the year that I knew the house was going to sell, I'd sort of tentatively put it on the market and didn't really want to sell it. It was a whole thing. It was so emotional and so, you know, like I said to you earlier, kind of traumatic. It, you know, it's the biggest letting go that mm. I've ever had to do. After so, like, how long were you? Like, well, how old were your kids at that point? Well, this is when you were this basically was, moving away. From yeah, the this was when. So we'd been there for nearly twenty-four years, and oh, my okay. marriage had broken down. We'd separated. I'd actually lived there. I'd lived in the house in Suffolk by myself for a while. And your and kids had gone? They were, they were they'd gone or they were coming and going. Yeah. It's like my youngest daughter was actually, she was still at sixth form college, but then soon to go to uni. My son was still at uni. My oldest daughter was sort of traveling backwards and forwards. Then she was doing an MA. So yeah, they still needed a home, um, but they weren't living full time. Anyway, the last... Um, the last spring, I was very keen on, I loved gardening and planting and growing and all of that. And I planted, oh, years before. Um, I mean, I did a lot of planting when we first moved in, like 20 years previously. And that was, again, one of the hardest things was leaving these 
like cherry trees that had trunks that I couldn't even fit my hand round and that were really tall and whose boughs were absolutely dripping with blossom. I was like, I can't, I can't leave you. You've become so beautiful. Um, and you'd planted them. And you? I planted wow. them. I'd actually, you know, carried them out of my car in a pot. Yeah, that, that's And dug something. them in. Yeah, so, and the same with the apple trees. But anyway, so the last spring and all these beautiful bulbs that I'd kind of selected and curated and every year they came up slightly differently because that's what flowers do some of them some of them stay very vigorous some of them get a little bit weedy some of them kind of morph and become something as slightly different um and then they get bugs and then they're eaten and then some bugs or viruses turn them different colors I mean the whole thing's just a con- it's constantly beautiful in its surprise every year anyway that spring I was like oh my god I won't see these I won't see them again. What what am I going to do about this creatively? How can because I was I was in a almost permanent state of I'd say kind of low level terror about leaving mm. and who, and how was that going to go? Would I survive leaving this place I loved so much? Um, and who would I be? Mm. You know, yeah, it's a uh, huge change to huge contemplate. Huge change, not I, just physically moving, but but you know everything that that that. Yeah, leaving behind so many, exactly, all the big, significant things that I was having to leave behind. So, and I used to run around the house going, how can I photograph this place? I I realized I couldn't photograph a house. You can't photograph a house. What you can really only ever photograph is something that is super meaningful. And in focusing very carefully on something smaller, you you bring in all the bigger charge. It, It just gets kind of focused and poured into so that's what I did with these flowers and I photographed them in a different way because I I part of my practice is photographing on a large plate camera which I didn't do very much with my kids when mm. they were little because it's just they they it's just not possible unless you have very staged very static pictures which wasn't really what I was interested in um, I did some portraits of them and my mum when they got a bit older and could hold still for for a few moments but but the flowers I was like right these need to be revered and documented in in the most um profound way that I know photographically and that was using the plate camera and I felt it would pick up all of their little details and the holes drilled in the leaves by the bugs and the little tiny spiders webs and the snail trails across the it would all be picked up all be picked up and I did it for I suppose that project lasted about six weeks mm. from the start of the blooms to the end because they came in waves, different flowers, and I'd um, go and pick them. Some of them I pulled up uh, in the in the in the spirit of the botanical um, illustrations where you where have a you have a bulb and then you have the flower. Some and. I felt a bit bad about that and I put them on my kitchen counter. There was one little window that had this lovely north-facing light. And it was, it was. I mean, talk about, it was quite a struggle because it wasn't an ideal photographic space and I had to balance the tripod on chairs and stools and books and, you know, it was quite precarious. And I actually wish I'd just taken, thought to have taken a few self-timers of myself climbing in these <laughs> super unsafe unruly positions to to photograph them but it was such a beautiful exercise because not only did I record the flowers but it gave me a focus of 
to my I mean grief I don't want to say that they're they're wholly sad pictures because they're not they're also a celebration of everything that I loved um but they are not but and they are really charged mm. they're really charged pictures I printed them took me a long time to be able to even look at the contexts uh but about six months later I printed them I printed about 24 of them quite large at my lab and I put them in a grid and the, and it was like whoa mm. obviously to me but then people who didn't know me or know my work would walk in and go wow what's going on here some this is quite intense so that's when it really kind of came home to me that that when you take a picture or make a picture with real intent and there's a real integrous lineup of feeling and emotion um that that film translates that for yeah. you it puts it on the plate or the negative and i'm so grateful that photography does do that because i feel that i had previously felt that the people who had greater access to that were the poets musicians the painters the sculptors how can you do that with photography and actually it's not so much how it's just the fact that you do do it mm. and then when you look at those pictures in years to come you're like wow yes that that so speaks of how I felt and I know that that did translate because people who I've never met from the other side of the world have written to me saying you're I found your book so resonant and so emotional and it's reminded me of da 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 this that and the other and 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 I've just thought yes photography is so magic yeah, yeah. it's brilliant that it can speak a language a visual language that that people anywhere can speak mm. no it's extraordinary I'm wondering if to touch upon an age-old debate whether it's something to do with the f with with the film itself rather than I mean I know you shoot on film mm. all these are Always. on film yeah yeah and um yeah, we kind of get into this from time to time. Um, generally speaking, I would argue that it's it's not a thing. But then when you talk about the way in which those flower pictures are imbued with kind of a significance, I'm, I'm wondering, there is something, there is something, um, and there's something about the quality of these images in terms of the colour rendition and all that kind of thing that is particular to film. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I suppose we, well, we could debate that. Well, I'm always going to come down on the side of film because yeah. um, I just don't believe that pixels carry the possibility of an emotional imprint mm. in the same way that celluloid and emulsion does. Mm. I and and also the thing about film is that it has its own alchemy. You know, you can you can be shooting in a certain environment and. Maybe it's very hot, maybe it's very cold, maybe the film's a bit old, but then there's so then there are going to be these other layers that might creep in. You might quite, there are quite a few pictures in the book where there are light leaks in the cameras, or there's you know, there's there's some sort of flare that's interrupted the 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 picture. And I, I, I would not change those, I'm not going to neaten those up and take them out. There's no retouching, that's very much part of the process, yeah, yeah. and um, I mean, Stephen Gill's work for example. I love his work. I love that he allows so much alchemy into his pictures, whether he's burying them or whether he's letting insects crawl inside his camera mm. or whether he's 
got a trip that that takes a picture of a bird as it lands on a post or flies off you know i i just love that he is so open to everything and the beauty of that and that kind of release of control um i think is again i think that's inc- i think that's got a beauty of its own that way transcends whether someone's looking pretty or an animal's got light running across its back or something i don't know yeah there's there's just another layer that can come in yeah the unexpected yeah and and being open to that is i think is or learning to be open to that i think is an art in itself and then once you once you've got that once you've got that bug um yeah running with it and letting you know, letting all the other stuff in, I think is really important. Mm. I think it's an important part of picture taking. I mean, I couldn't be a studio still life photographer, although I do appreciate the challenges of still life. I'm not saying it's an easy thing at all, but to photograph incessantly where everything is within your control, um, I don't think that's just not how I can function. Yeah. I like, I like chaos. I like the fact that photographing children, you don't know what they're going to do. You don't know. Animals, likewise, weather, likewise, you know, all of these things, film that hasn't possibly been very carefully taken care of. Mm. What's going to happen? Yeah, you can really embrace that uncertainty. And it's, as you say, you know, I guess this is about how broader church photography is, Mm. um, that there are people who seek to control absolutely everything. I just spoke to Gregory Crewston recently, you know, he's, I suppose, the ultimate example of that. And I, I must, it's funny, I never, I didn't say it as if, as if he cared, but there was a time when I hated all that because I thought it was cheating. Mm. You know, like I was so enamoured of the decisive moment or, or, or the idea of documentary photography, but where you're just, you know, you're just capturing something with the minimum amount of intervention, you know. Yes. Which, you know, it's, I still love. And, and you know, this is what we're talking about. I mean, it's partly, you know, even whether you're photographing your kids or whatever. Yeah. But I've really learned to appreciate the whole other side of things. Like I, since, I mean, it was, you know, it's been years since I felt that way. But w- the way that he sets everything up so meticulously, mm. I really I really enjoy that now. So I can, I've just broadened my horizons, basically, as far yeah, as what, yeah, what, yeah, what yeah. photography I can, I can really appreciate and enjoy. I like that. Now, what about your mum and photographing her as mm. part of this? Um, not, not we won't call it a project because you weren't didn't have it in mind as a kind of one big kind of mm. thing ultimately. But when did you start taking pictures of your mum? Well, there was a really distinct coincidence, which was as my children were getting a bit older and therefore less free in front of a camera and also they they didn't always fancy being in a picture and they'd be like Whoa. and they'd scoot out of the room they'd see me raise my camera and and literally disappear or turn away and and so I thought mm, right let's see I I felt in a bit of a flow I wanted to continue taking pictures of with my family occasionally I put myself in the picture but I didn't again I felt that was slightly cheating because I was so aware I couldn't not be aware if I was putting myself in the picture and then my mum used to come and stay a lot in because she lived in London she loved coming in and staying in the countryside so I started photographing her now she is uh, someone who grew up in this culture of beauty that I was talking about and when she was 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 to, I guess, in her early 20s, she was in Hollywood Mm. with 
its own culture of supreme kind of gloriousness. Everybody had to be glorious. Extraordinary, yeah. Yeah. And it was her mum, your grandma, was an actor. Yes, she was an actor and was kind of a famously beautiful person. My mum was a very, very beautiful child, which obviously served my grandma really well because uh, it was helpful to have a beautiful child to take on photo shoots. So so really what I'm... I'll, I'll try and keep this short, but my mum just grew up in this culture of being beautiful in front of a camera. That's what you... That's That's what it was. It was about being beautiful in front of a camera. So when I started taking just snaps of her uh, with her grandchildren, she would fuss. She'd be like, um, oh, don't take any pictures of me. I look so awful. Mm. And I'd be like, mom, that's not true. Come on. And partly out of willfulness and partly out of kind of challenge, I was like, I'm going to take, let me show you something. Let me take some pictures of you. Come on. And I took some pictures of her that she didn't like to start with. And then she was like, actually, actually, that's, that's you know, she, she kind of came around to it, basically. Mm. She realized that there was a new, she was no longer 25. Um, and although she, she still kicked off about that, she could interact with the camera in a different way. And she, she trusted me. And to the point that we'd say together, okay, let's go off on a little photo shoot. Let's go and... Let's go to the, I don't know, the estuary in winter. Um, it's really beautiful. I'm going to take a few different clothes because maybe some colours might look better. And we did these little mini photo shoots. And I would argue right now, if she said that she doesn't, doesn't like the photo, that she really enjoyed the experience. She mm. really enjoyed me interacting with her in a different way. I think she really enjoyed being observed by me with a very gentle gaze I didn't have any you know I wasn't trying to take mean pictures of her or take pictures of her that she'd be uncomfortable with but I wanted to take pictures that were honest and in that honesty also show her how how glorious she still was mm. um that that's was so interesting that's kind of that's sort of the incentive it feels like maybe like do you think that in that process she somehow learned to accept the kind of aging process mm. because you know as you say a woman of her generation who was you know a great beauty and everything i mean it's it's got to suck mm. when mm. you realize you're sort of you know 80 it sucks or big time oh it sucks, so it sucks badly. why yeah. would you you know you know just because you're getting old doesn't mean you don't still have a you know an ego or whatever mm. so but it sounds like maybe she went on a bit of a journey there i think she did i i really do think she did and it wasn't always spoken about because um First of all, I think I think there are times that if you if you speak too much, if you explain too much, it kind of it slightly dilutes the potency or the magic of what's going on. So when I was out on like a little photo trip with her, I, I didn't talk a huge amount. I didn't say, "Oh, I'm doing this because," or "This is yeah. this is going to be lovely because," or da da da. It was it was kind of it was more like a dance, really. Um, Oh, there's just something I want to say to you that I learned that I thought was so beautiful. I was, this is not, it's a bit um, off the subject of my mum. But I was on um, assignment in Buenos Aires photographing the real tango dancers, not the the showy ones. It was like the real kind of underground tango. Um, And I was put in touch with this 
elderly woman. I mean, she was in her 80s. She'd been dancing tango her entire life. And she was a tiny, tiny creature. She was like a little bird. And her partner at the time was much, much, much bigger than her, massively younger than her. I think he was like 30 and she was... Anyway, I remember her saying, I found this quite shocking until I realized, until I kind of got my head around it. She was saying, so when I dance, when I'm dancing with my partner, I am so in love with him. I am in love. And I remember thinking, that's a bit weird. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I watched her dance and I could see that that actually, that was how her you know, tango's a really passionate mm. dance. Um, and that then she could just sort of come out of it and say, okay, bye, Jorge, whatever, but we'll see you next week or something. And I was like, but that's not love because doesn't love just, how can you dip in and out of love like that? Love but, to me is that you can't turn it on and turn it off. She didn't mean it literally. No, I know now what she meant. And I then realized that actually what she was speaking of was also my own experience of when I was photographing whoever it was whether it was my children obviously there was a there was an an infinite amount of love involved in those moments but photographing someone who I didn't really know at all but that same feeling which I can now call love it was like it was willing loving that person into their best self in front of my camera because that's where I wanted to to kind of be and so this woman in Buenos Aires spoke that very clearly. And while at the time I was a bit like, oh, mm. then I then I I totally relaxed into the truth of that. And then when when I was photographing my mum to come back to that, um, that's what it was. I realized that in those moments with my camera, I kind of was able to love her in a way that I found more difficult in real life without a camera. Mm. And I'm sure that there are lots of people who photographed intimate relationships and have found that it gives them a different it 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 they're able to access a different maybe freer mm. the the camera's a bit of a thing to hide behind the excuse is that you've got a camera there and I and I found with my mum that I was able to let all I mean it sounds this sounds well I'll just say it anyway I I felt that I was able to let a lot of love pour towards her Mm. that in real life it might have felt awkward how would I have how would I have trans I mean I suppose I could just sit there and let love pour around (laughs) but there was something about capturing it or or framing that moment in a rectangle via my camera that that seemed to give it a different status Mm. and She's definitely not the sort of person that I could say to her, Mom, I really love you. She'd mm. be like, what? What do you mean? It's too weird. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. So that I could generation. kind of do it through pictures. I could do it through pictures. I mean, it's funny. That something that came to mind is that you, you gave yourself permission. Yeah. And then <laughs> suddenly we're at the title of the book. Yeah, of the book, exactly. Which I hadn't really thought of. Oh, yeah. Then. It's so about that. Yeah. The title, um, it's... That I didn't think up that title. No. That was thought up by Stephen Ledger Lomas, and I think it's such a, it's such an excellent title because it works on many levels. Of course, it's also about your children's mm. permission, and of course, they when they're very young, they're not in a position to give it. And oh, and this is that, a whole other conversation yeah, about yeah. the permission of of well, photo talk, taking. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Then. I mean, 
I guess now they look back and I'm sure they like the pictures. I'm sure they're proud of of you for for you know producing this mm. book. But well, I guess there were times when there was there was attention to it. And and you know, I mean, I said my my kid won't. He actually he sort of lets me do a sort of official portrait. But mm. if there's anything that might be Instagram or whatever, it's like no way. And and I just kind of respect that. I've always respected that. Mm. But um. You know, when they're very young, they don't really get a say. How how have you sort of negotiated all of that? It's a forever question, as in like you never arrive at an answer because mm. the answer keeps changing. Um, so when my kids were little, I had this maternal dominion over them, which isn't necessarily ideal, but that's what I was exerting. I was like, I'm your mom, you're my kids. We do stuff because I say so kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And... If they pushed back, fair enough. And if they didn't, great. It kind of things went my way. When they started to push back or not want to, I don't know, run along the edge of a field uh, when I suggested it, oh, um, then I could see that, that that inherent sort of permission that I had from them was, was being called into question. And I really respected it. I have to say there were very few times when I overrode it. There is a picture in the book, actually, which was an abject override of permission. That's the one um, of your daughter with her head in With her, her head. head in her hands, absolutely ducking out of the picture. But for the most part, um, I, I've, I very much went with it. But I, you see, I was looking at the time, I was looking at the work a lot. Um, I was looking at Sally Mann's work a lot. When I started photographing, I mean, her work I thought was so supremely beautiful and idyllic and kind of mythic. Um, and also I was looking at the fact that she was photographing her children and she was, they were naked and hanging from a meat hook or, you know, stuff like that. And I was like, I, I never dare ask my children to do something like that because that, again, seemed so outside the realm of possibility you know all my all my pictures are kind of there it was kind of stuff that was going on so I wasn't having to I wasn't having to push into another territory I wouldn't I don't think I would have ever felt comfortable enough to do that anyway and I have I have incredible admiration for Sally Mann's um sense of purpose in doing that I, I know that well I don't know but I hear that subsequently it wasn't all easy that mm. some of her kids did have issues with some of the pictures. And I suppose in some ways that there were my picture taken with my kids. I wanted to preempt there being any issues by not going into that, not going into that zone. And part of that was cowardly. Part of it offered up a huge amount of frustration because I had this, I very often had pictures in my head that I wanted to make and that I kind of just couldn't. I didn't dare. Um, maybe they were I'm not saying inappropriate as in like they were inappropriate pictures but it just felt like too many steps too far and I didn't want to start setting that sort of precedent with my kids I wanted them always to feel relaxed mm. and, and okay and cool and it was like worst case scenario they were like no I'm not, I don't want to do this and I'd be like okay that's fine yeah, yeah. Um, but you're constantly having to make that judgment, I suppose, on a yeah. sort of moment by moment. You have basis. to, exactly. And it's a very fine, you know, sort of instinctive calibration. And so what happened, what very often happened to me was that any 
sort of regret for not having pushed a little bit further or frustration in a picture not working out I then then I'd have all those things rolling around inside me I'm like that was part of my my struggle if you like was holding was holding my unmet dreams that I maybe wanted to try and explore via photographing my family and 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 kind of holding the failures along with the the micro I wouldn't say successes but you know we, we we made some pictures and I think looking back now there's there are a lot of my pictures that were more successful than I gave them credit for mm. I was super um I was very what's the word I was I, I was I was quite restrictive with myself about what I thought worked and what didn't work right, um, right. I, I there aren't many pictures that I came across that I was like, whoa, I really missed a good picture there. I think my editing at the time was pretty accurate. Mm. And I also think my picture taking, for the most part, was also accurate because I didn't take very many pictures each time. Mm. Might be two or three frames. Some some rolls of film, there are three really strong, very different pictures on. I was like, wow, that was a, that was a lucky roll. Um, did, did you um changed your style of shooting as as the years went on i mean can you detect a sort of shift in the way that you've approached the images you know f- over that sort of 20 year period yes i think that they became more constructed as mm. time went by i i started thinking more about where whereas before it had been sort of feeling light kind of movement where people found themselves um I then started thinking a bit more about the color palette of a picture little tiny details that perhaps no one else would notice but for me they added up to the sum of the parts like for example there's a picture of my mum I had more time with my mum in the sense she was a much older human she's very she responded very differently I'd have to choose the moment she had very little patience so I wasn't going to get a huge you know I was going to get maybe five or six clicks so that's not that's half a roll you had to nail it quick I had to nail it quick but I also had to assemble what whatever ingredients I wanted in the picture and there there's a there's a picture of her with some uh dog rose hips in winter at the edge of an estuary and the colors are very particular and i taken along a particular sweater of hers that I thought was going to work and she had my dog's lead around her waist and it was red like the rose hips and the mm. whatever and it all looks very nonchalant and very casual and not at all set up but there'd been quite a lot of thought going into it I didn't name it and I didn't kind of discuss it but it was right. all just me pushing things into the frame in a way that seemed casual mm. but actually I'm glad I did because it gave me it gave me a little satisfaction mm. uh, the ones that just seem so, uh, so much more serendipitous this one which is obviously you know a, a real yeah banger yes um but your daughter's got this kind of uh, yeti like uh, coat on walking through a, a field I mean that, that's just I mean well, you suppose you could have prepared for it and set it up. But... Well, I did prepare for it in the sense that that was um, on the way to school early that morning. She wasn't old enough to go to school. So she came on the school run with the two others. And I, that was very close to where we lived. And I noticed that day that there was it's quite an unusual weather combination of frost and fog. Mm. Normally, they're kind of mutually exclusive. There isn't because fog is sort of damp. 
um, and usually is frost is and, and frost is yes. frost is cold and mm. sort of high pressure. Anyway, they were both, and I was like, "Wow, that's so beautiful." She actually had that coat, so that was a coat that I'd bought her. But I can also say, in complete honesty, that the way I chose clothes for my kids, they were chosen with pictures in mind. Right. Not, I mean, they didn't all make it into pictures, but the way that I arranged my house, the way you know, it was all a little. It was a nonchalant kind of set, or let's say. Everything was arranged in ways that that I loved. So whether it was in a picture or not in a picture, it didn't matter. It was all part of my kind of visual universe, let's say. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't want to sound like I wasn't dressing the kids. It was just, it was all, if they were wearing this outfit or that outfit, it didn't matter because they were all, they all kind of worked in yeah, a yeah. way. Um, but yeah, so I went back. Um, I don't think she was wearing that particular coat. I drove home as fast as I possibly could, got the coat, said, we're going to go, I, I'm, we're going to make a photo in this in the field because it's so beautiful. And actually the lollipop was a bribe. It was a blatant bribe. I yeah. was like, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, here's the lollipop. What? Really? I'll do anything. Yeah. Um, the, the, but the lollipop is the, is the detail that well, really the, kind of yeah. sends it over the edge. I mean, that is the, it, this kind of little dot of, of, of bright yellow in, of, in the yeah, kind of Yeah, exactly. Part. Yeah, I mean. So that's how that happened. It was totally, that was a, that was an arranged picture. Yeah. As in like, I've got to make this picture. It's all too beautiful and unusual mm -hmm. to pass by. Mm. I don't think there are any pictures of their dad at all, are there? Was there that... is there is one? Okay. Yeah, there's there's a picture of their dad and there's a picture of my dad. Yeah, I saw that one because there was a moment during um, the sequencing when I was working with Stu, when actually there were no men other than my son or a few kind of ch kid like cousins or mm. friends, of my kids, boys. There were no men in the book, um, and I because. In my original edit, there were quite a few more. Um, and I said, oh, I don't really want to. I'm not trying to say something there. Um, can we squeeze Can we squeeze oh, a right. few guys back Just in? Just to prove that you were trying to make a point. Just to prove that I'm not point. trying to make a point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I thought it was quite interesting that Stu had taken them all out. I think maybe they just weren't as strong pictures anyway. Yeah. Mm. So, um, but I'm glad that they're there, just even if... Maybe it's a slightly token presence. Mm, mm, mm. Um, yeah. Also, to be honest, my husband didn't really like being photographed. Well, he, that was what he, I was wondering. He was not very good in pictures. Some people I, just aren't. Some people just hate he it. He was awkward in pictures. Yeah. Um, and he's he's a most lovely, lovely man. So that's no disrespect to him as a, no, no, as sure. a human. But he, you know, I'd say, can you go and stand over there? And, and then I'd be like, oh, actually, maybe just don't worry about it. It's fine. Mm. Don't worry. Just it's fine. Because he couldn't just be... He had to pose in a way that was weird. And yeah, yeah. And your dad, who's in there, just the one picture again. I mean, obviously, he, he was an actor, quite a well-known one, and, um, you know, much, much beloved, as it were, um, you know, for ha having been on our TV screens and all that for, for years. But I guess, obviously, he was very comfortable. I mean, ha or maybe not with you well, behind the camera. I don't know. But he was yeah, used, to, used I mean, to being in front of a camera. That's he was for sure. used to being in front of a camera, but also he was actually really hard to photograph because he'd make faces and <laughs> right. do special pouts and all this kind of thing. So trying to catch him unawares was like trying to photograph an animal looking at you before it looked away. It was, right. if I could catch him in between, um, then I felt that was a bit of an achievement because I really didn't want to do his 
his special camera face. And he had to like, be on sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and and there are a lot, I've, I've photographed a lot of actors mm. and some of them are, very few of them can just let go in front of the camera. Most of them have their, you know, they go into performance. Yeah. And, but kind of fair enough. That's what, That's what they, they are do. and who they, yeah. who they, what they do. I'm not really very interested in that because I'm not seeing, I'm not even getting a, tiny glimpse of the human behind the the performance mm. but I mean we all do it to some extent and that's one of the most beautiful things about photographing children at a certain age is that they haven't yet learned to produce themselves mm. otherwise we all produce ourselves even you know in micro levels but you know if I had a camera here right now I you you would change your you'd alter yourself in some way oh god I'd be squirming yeah and i would too i'd be like oh god hold on let me try and you know <laughs> just just arrange myself so that i don't look too freaky in front of the camera and what's that about yeah That's self- and children don't have that well this is partly what so alice beautiful. zoo talked about in her essay at the back of the book which is which is really lovely and and she doesn't make any direct reference to the pictures but she talks about it in a kind of mm. oblique way and i think that's partly what the, the stuff yes i love how about. she writes she writes generally and also specifically mm. about both. I like, she doesn't refer to the photographs or to the photographer, but she talks about motherhood and mm. the world through a child's eyes. And she speaks of it so eloquently. And simply, I was I was absolutely delighted when I read that. Yeah, yeah, it fits. Mm. Now, this is, I hear this is sold out, which is gratifying. Is yes. it sold out? Well, I mean, yes, apparently. I think if you Google it, you can find it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can still find some copies on the Amazon. And I think there are some copies in in some bookstores. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's sort of officially, it is sold out, which I'm astonished by. Mm. How many did they do? I don't even know. Okay. I don't, I'm not even sure. Because I know that a number were pre-bought by... Charcoal. Right, Charcoal Book Club, yeah. Charcoal Book Club. So they added that. But I'm I actually, I asked yesterday because I was on the phone to um, one of the people at Gost who said it was sold out. And I was like, oh, wow. Mm. Um, and, I, and, I, and I forgot to ask how many the print run was. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was a huge print run. Mm. So, you know, it's not like a, it wasn't an addition of 5,000, that's for sure. Yeah, but even so, it's, it's still, you know, yeah. for a I think book. it was around the eight. Eight or nine hundred, mm-hmm. amazing. Well, maybe not including the charcoal, something yeah. like that. Yeah, maybe they'll um, reprint it. And, uh, I don't know if that's what Stu does. I think. Yeah, I, I think. I think maybe a a sellout book is is it's such a, a wonderful yeah, a thing. thing. It's a yeah. It's a I I feel I feel very kind of excited and a bit daunted by that. Actually, to be honest, <laughs> I'm going to hang on to the copies that I've got. With yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Dear life. Yeah. No, no. But I mean, if people write and say they can't get a hold of a copy, I, I still have, I can still sell some. Cool. Because I've still got some myself. Good. Well, look, um, yeah, congratulations. And um, I've really enjoyed this. This oh, has been well, fantastic. Thank you. thank you so much for, for chatting, Emma. It's, yeah, been a really, I, we feel like we could, I could easily do another half an hour but we'll we'll there's I a ton want... of stuff to talk about always, so much, isn't yeah, yeah i know but this was i was going to say at the beginning i was going to fess up and say that there are times when although i've done this 200 times nearly now i, I there are times when i'm like 
what the hell am I going to ask Emma? Because I think certain work, it just sort of, it stands for itself, it speaks for itself. And you go, yeah, but I actually, where, you know. Anyway, this has been effortless, which um, which I always appreciate and enjoy. So thank you. And oh, we'll well, we'll thank do the you. bonus questions. Thank you very much indeed. Mm-hmm.